Hey guys, happy Monday. Welcome to Relatable. This episode, as all episodes, is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers. Get American meat delivered right to your front door. Go to goodranchers.com slash Allie. That's goodranchers.com slash Allie. All right, guys, we've got a great episode for you today. We are talking to our new friend, John Schweppe. He is the Director of Policy and Government Affairs at the American Principles Project. He is also a Lincoln Fellow at the Claremont Institute. And I am having him on because he had a really interesting and revealing thread about why there are some groups and individuals who call themselves conservatives. They are on the right who are supporting the nomination of Katanji Brown-Jackson. And it has to do with something called criminal justice reform, which as we've talked about, is actually a very destructive set of policies that often leads to higher rates of crime and more victims. So why are there some foundations, organizations, politicians on the right who are supporting so-called criminal justice reform and are supporting Katanji Brown-Jackson, especially with her disturbing record and issuing such light sentences on child predators and child sex abuse consumers. And so I have a couple more things that I want to say before we actually get into that interview. But before we get into the serious stuff, I want to talk about the slap heard around the world. One of the most stunning moments in TV history, I think. And that is when Will Smith at the Oscars last night just slapped the heck out of Chris Rock, who was hosting the Oscars. It it was, if you haven't heard of this, heard about this yet, if you haven't watched this yet, you got to watch this. Watch this on YouTube. If you're listening, go back later, watch it on YouTube because you got to see this. All right, here it is. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? I'm out here. Uh Uh-oh, Richard. (laughs) Oh, wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. He put my name out your mouth. Wow, dude. Yes. It was a G.I. Jane jump. Keep my wife's name I'm going to, okay? Okay, just to give some context in case you weren't on Twitter and you weren't seeing people talk about this, Jada Pinkett Smith, she has alopecia. And so she lost a lot of hair and she looks bald. And so Chris Rock calling her, you know, in G.I. Jane 2. G.I. Jane was a movie. Demi Moore shaved her head, and that was like a big thing back then. And so he's just making a joke because now she has a shaved head, which, by the way, like she looks really beautiful. She can totally rock that look. I don't even know if Chris Rock knew that it was because of alopecia. He might have thought that she just shaved her head. I had no idea that she had alopecia. That's not something that everyone knows. Now, maybe he was, and he was just making a joke at her expense, which, by the way, is something that comedians do. Comedians like Chris Rock, I mean, they test the limits of what someone can say. They say offensive stuff. So I have I have a few thoughts about this whole thing. On the one hand, I think it is completely justified for Will Smith to feel offended on behalf of his wife. Now, I will say when you see the footage, you will see that right after Chris Rock tells the joke, Will Smith was actually laughing. And then he gets up a few seconds later because I guess he saw Jada's face. Jada was not laughing at all. She looked very offended by it. 
And so I don't know if he looked at her and was like, oh, shoot, my wife is not happy. Like, I don't want to sleep on the couch tonight, whatever it was. And so he decided to get up and then slap Chris Rock to defend his woman. Or if he was doing like a fake laugh, like, ha ha ha, I'm about to kill you kind of laugh, which is a little bit troubling. Or he didn't really hear the joke, but it's a little strange. He looked sincerely jovial and like he thought that the joke was funny. And then he literally goes up there and just slaps him. And obviously, Chris Rock, you can tell as he is about to get slapped, he doesn't know what's coming. Like he thinks it's a joke and there's uncomfortable laughter um, from the audience. And then as Will Smith starts yelling from the audience, that's when you see everyone's face kind of go serious. Like, oh, this is this is real. Like that wasn't just a bit. And there are these um, there are these like montages of people's of celebrities reactions uh, going going around on Twitter, which were kind of funny. Like, I don't actually think that it, I think it was real. I think it's something that that really happened. So, uh, so that's, that's, that's one thought that maybe, um, maybe he was justified in being offended. Will Smith was justified. And, you know, someone going out and fighting on behalf of your woman or like punching a guy on behalf of your girl, like that's something, that's a tale as old as time. However, however, it is still a little psychotic, okay, for you to hear a comedian tell a joke, uh, yes, an offensive joke, and then to get up on stage in front of millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people, I don't know how many people watch the Oscars these days, and to slap a comedian for telling an offensive joke. Like, that's a little crazy. That's, I'm sorry, that's a little wild. I understand being offensive, uh, being offended. Okay, fine. Be offended. Talk to him after. Maybe you even take it outside after the show, or maybe you mention it in your speech because he did end up winning an Oscar. And it was weird. His speech was like, are you talking about the character that you played defending his family? Are you talking about the moment that you just had defending your family? It was very confusing. But there were so many different ways that Will Smith could have handled it rather than doing what he did. I felt really bad for Chris Rock. I don't think that the joke was great. Like, I don't like making fun of people for things that they can't control. Maybe that's just because I'm sensitive. I don't like those kinds of jokes either. And if someone did that to my family, like my child or something, maybe I would go up on stage and slap them too. Like, maybe maybe so. There is that part of that, that Will Smith has seen his wife struggle with this thing, and it really you know, hit home and really he took it hard. Like if my spouse had some kind of special need and someone made fun of it on live TV, who knows? Maybe I would want to go out there and slap them too. However, I don't think that's a really great justification for what he did. And one thing I will say, no matter what your perspective is on it, is that Will Smith, even even if you think he was justified in this, like even if you think he was justified in doing what he did, he's not a victim, like, he just assaulted someone on live television for telling a joke. He's not a victim. And all of the people were, who were comforting him, like, on the side of the stage and afterward, you saw Denzel Washington, whom I love, by the way, and uh, Bradley Cooper and all these people saying, like, it's okay, dude, it's okay. I mean, is this the conclusion of the culture that we've built, that words are violence, but actual violence isn't violence? That's kind of what it seems like. I'm not trying to make it political because I'm not saying that this is necessarily a political thing. I'm not trying to make it a culture war issue. It's just a little, but I did see it fall along kind of predictable lines that most people like on the right or center right 
were saying that was totally uncalled for. Chris Rock is a comedian. And then a lot of people on the left who seem to kind of applaud it and think that, oh, yeah, he's just defending his family. I And that's weird. Like, what are, what are the politics behind that? Why, why would the left react that way? Ayanna Presley, who is a far left congresswoman, she actually tweeted, uh, she has alopecia as well. And so she is bald. And she tweeted, alopecia nation, stand up. Thank you, Will Smith. And then she posts a picture of herself and says some other things. Thank you, Will Smith. It, it's just, it's honestly, it's strange. I, again, I don't want to make it political, but why are you defending violence because of someone's words? Is that a good justification for it? It does seem like the left is more and more comfortable with responding to offensive words with violence. I'm not saying that's Will Smith's political motivation, but the reactions to it, how it fell along partisan lines, very strange. I think lots of things are true simultaneously. Um, and so maybe there is some nuance there. At the end of the day, though, Will Smith is not a victim. I don't think that how he reacted to that was justified. And I think some people should have some sympathy for Chris Rock. Like there seemed to be no sympathy in the crowd for Chris Rock. And there absolutely should be. He probably didn't even know the the joke was going to be that offensive. And like he is a comedian. Crazy times, crazy times. We are going to remember that moment forever. I'm just, I, we, that's going to like go down in the TV Hall of Fame. All right, before I get into some couple, th- uh, a couple things before we actually get into our interview, let me tell you about our first sponsor for the day, and that is Z Stack. If the last two years have taught us anything, it is that you have to take control of your own health. We cannot trust the public health bureaucracy to give us accurate information about treatments and preventative care, unfortunately. And that is where Z-Stack comes in. Z-Stack is a specially formulated immune-boosting supplement that includes zinc, quercetin, vitamin C and vitamin D um, formulated by Dr. Zelenko, the world-renowned doctor that President Trump credited with his successful early treatment protocol and his decision to take hydroxychloroquine. Z-Stack has been scientifically formulated, is kosher and GMP certified, and is produced right here in the USA. Go to zstacklife.com slash Allie. That's zstacklife.com slash Allie. All right, just want to set this up a little bit before we get into our conversation. So we have already talked about Katanji Brown-Jackson and her record, particularly when it comes to the sentencing of child sex predators and consumers and distributors of child sex abuse material. Um, And we're going to talk about just some of that heinous stuff today, some stuff that I read in the Washington Post that I talked about and added to a highlight on Instagram over the weekend that really is just stunning, especially in light of a lot of professing Christians, public support of Katanji Brown-Jackson. She does objectively have a record of uh, issuing light sentences for all kinds of criminals, but I think it is particularly disturbing the light sentences that she has issued for child sex predators and the justifications that she has given for that. I know some people have sent me the article from National Review saying, oh, you know, well, it's really hard to sentence child sex predators and, you know, child pornographers and all of that. And so really, we should be looking at some other problems about Katanji Brown-Jackson. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that I buy that argument. Yes, there could be other issues with her that she's light on crime in general, but that to me is particularly egregious. I think it's important to focus on that because it gets people's attention that when you are soft on crime, like these are the kinds of people that are being let loose back into the community and are most often reoffending. And who are their victims? Children. 
And so I actually think that it is very good for Josh Hawley and Senator Cruz and um, for other politicians to highlight this. Now, is it true that these senators should also be trying to pass legislation that gives firmer guidelines on um, uh, on sentencing for these kinds of criminals? Yes, I do think that's true. So I think that's a fair argument. But that doesn't mean that we should turn away from this record when it comes to Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Someone that we've had on this podcast um, once or twice, I think just once, is Rachel Bovard. And she's awesome. She um, used to work in D.C. in the kind of libertarian movement. And I, I don't know if she would identify herself as a conservative pop populist. And so I don't want to put that label on her. But she has been someone, one of the few, or she kind of bucks against a lot of libertarians today who are not willing to kind of break up big tech and talk about big tech, big tech uh, censorship. And she also continually, I think, really effectively brings us back to what conservatism actually is, which is not just opposing big government, but opposing all kinds of dangerous and power hungry bureaucracy, including corporate bureaucracy. And she wrote um, a good article in The Federalist about why we should care about Ketanji Brown-Jackson's leniency towards sex predators. And she argues that the Senate should actually investigate this and that this is the conservative position. And so here's part of what she said. She says that Judge Jackson appears to have a track record of both advocacy and sentencing decisions, demonstrating an extreme leniency towards child sex predators. Perhaps more concerningly, her record also demonstrates an attempt to normalize a radical sexual ideology of adults being attracted to minors, categorizing it as not as flatly criminal, but simply as misunderstood. While at the U.S. Sentencing Commission, Judge Jackson advocated for eliminating the existing mandatory minimum sentences for child porn, suggesting that at least some people who possess child porn aren't sexually motivated, but simply in this for the community. That's something that Katanji Brown-Jackson said. And as I will mention in the interview uh, with John that we are about to have, the Washington Post also noted that when she sentenced an 18-year-old, the 19-year-old, to only three months in prison for possessing child sex abuse material of kids as young as eight getting raped, she said that he was just sexually curious about his peers his peers. And so she has really, really troubling rhetoric when it comes to this and a really troubling um, record. So uh, Rachel Bovard goes on to say, while on the federal bench, Judge Jackson demonstrated a continuous string of departures from sentencing guidelines for sex predators. The Biden administration and its backers have offered no substantive defense of Judge Jackson's record. While the White House has dismissed Hawley's critique as cherry picking that buckles under the lightest scrutiny, they just say that kind of stuff, they have failed to demonstrate how. They've resorted instead to tossing complete non sequiturs at Hawley, calling him an insurrectionist and bizarrely trying to tie him to the candidacy of former Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore. Uh, but the flags in Judge Jackson's record are not cherry-picked, nor are they taken out of context. Rather, they are a pattern. Yes, we have talked about this. There were seven instances that Josh Hawley brought up when she, when, when he was uh, talking to her about this, and we talked about them last week. I'll just go through a couple of them. 
uh, defendant distributed multiple images of child pornography, I say child sex abuse, uh, abuse material, possessed as a dozens more, including videos. Federal sentencing guidelines said 97 to 121 months in prison. Prosecutors recommended 24 months in prison. Judge Jackson gave the defendant three months in prison. The defendant distributed 33 graphic images, distributed 33 graphic images and videos of child sexual assault on anonymous messaging app. Federal guidelines said 70 to 87 months in prison. Prosecutor recommended 70 months in prison. Judge Jackson sentenced to the lowest sentence permitted by law, which is 60 months. Over and over again, we have seen this by Judge Jackson. This is a fact. This is her record. And the media is just trying to call it QAnon. If you look up, um, you know, Josh Hawley, child predator hearing, whatever, you will see Variety. You will see Vox. You will see all of these left-wing and even libertarian outlets basically saying that he is just perpetuating some kind of QAnon conspiracy theory, some kind of uh, crazy conspiratorial nonsense, to put it in the words of Brene Brown. So, I mean, weigh these facts about her disturbing pattern that is recorded. It is a fact. There is no context that makes it better. There are no context that makes her words better, as we will talk about a little bit today. Weigh that against the people that you see defending her. The people who are saying, oh, well, we should still celebrate her in some way. Guys, she has a pattern of protecting child predators. The most egregious crime that we can think of, people who either get paid for or are consuming the rape of children. And as Ted Cruz pointed out, some of these images and videos include sadomasochistic material of infants. All right? We are talking about people who then very often go out to reoffend. These are not victimless crimes, by the way. You are causing a demand for this kind of material every time someone like this consumes it. Obviously, it's a even bigger issue to distribute it. And she is putting them in for the lowest amount of time possible. She has, since her days in college in the early 90s, argued against having any kind of child sex registry. Think about the professing Christians that you know who are who are advocating for her, who are just saying, oh, I'm just, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Just consider that. Consider that. It probably is coming from a place of of ignorance, I would say. But we're talking about real decisions that are affecting real people and real communities and real children. We're not just talking about personality flaws here. Like we are talking about, we're talking about real stuff here. I mean, this matters, this matters. And so the question that we have, the question that we have that we are going to answer today, why in the world are there some so-called conservative organizations and institutions that are saying, yes, Katanji Brown Jackson is so awesome and, you know, we should be behind her or who are saying, well, you know, we might disagree, but, you know, we're we're still going to support her anyway. Um, why? why? Why is that? So John Schweppe is going to kind of pull back the curtain for us and he's going to tell us he's in D.C. He's going to tell us what goes on at these D.C. cocktail parties that provides the motivation for supporting someone like this. Um, but before we get into that, let me tell you about our second sponsor for the day, and that is Birch Gold. Precious metals have historically been a safe haven in times of inflation, and Birch Gold is the leader in converting IRAs and 401ks into a tax-sheltered IRA backed by gold and silver. With thousands of satisfied customers and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, Birch Gold can help you protect your savings. Just text Allie to 988 Eight nine eight. That's nine eight nine eight nine 
8 to get a free info kit on gold. There's no obligation to get this info. You just have to text Allie to 989-898 to get your free info kit now. Again, that's Allie to 989-898. Okay, John, thank you so much for joining us. Can you first tell us who you are and what you do? Well, my name is John Schweppe. I am the Director of Policy and Government Affairs at a conservative group based out of D.C. called American Principles Project. Got it. And I'm so appreciative that you are here to spill the tea, as it were. There was a thread that got retweeted many times. I saw a lot of people talking about it. And when I saw it, I immediately said, oh, I want to know more about this. This is really interesting. The first tweet of the thread said, I'm tempted to share a dirty little secret about Washington, D.C. that would explain why many on the quote unquote right are basically cheerleading Katanji Brown Jackson's nomination. But I really don't know if folks could handle it. So rather than reading the rest of your thread. Can you just explain what you mean by that? Why are there some people on the right who are excited about this nomination? Sure. So about a year ago, I started researching funding and how it affects all these different organizations out here. And specifically, I was focused more on big tech companies. So Google, Facebook, uh, Amazon, Apple, and I was trying to figure out, you know, why are some of these conservative groups, for example, advocating for policies that favor the big tech companies when the companies are censoring conservatives? And when I when I did that research, you know, I found a lot of, you know, Google and all these companies do publicly disclose that information. But I was hearing from people in the know that one wrinkle to it was the Koch Foundation, the mm. the, the Koch brothers, and that they were giving out a lot of tech money as well. Uh, but that wasn't publicly available. And so and who, I started who doing are some... the Koch brothers. What is the Koch Foundation for those who don't know? And we're saying for people who aren't familiar, K-O-C-H. You may have heard about the Koch brothers. They're kind of just uh, they're these people that a lot of people can't really define or point to, at least people who aren't super familiar with them. So can you just quickly tell us who they are? Well, for the long time, they were a boogeyman for the left, right. uh, but they are a kind of libertarian leaning. They're not socially conservative. They don't want to talk about the social issues like abortion or transgenderism, um, but they you know, are wealthy benefactors who have funded a lot of politicians, a lot of um, you know, groups out here. And what they try to do, a lot of the business interest stuff uh, that you hear from the Chamber of Commerce that's kind of where the Koch Foundation has been historically. And so low taxes, low regulations, some things which really aren't that bad, but uh, certainly a de-emphasis on the social issues. Right. Okay. So continue. You kind of found in your research that they were behind some of some of these things that you were wondering, hey, why would conservatives be funding these organizations or be on the side of these tech companies? Right, right. So it's it's difficult because unfortunately, almost all of this money is, as uh, the Democrats like to say, dark money. It's really hard to kind of find where it went or mm. who actually received it unless the uh, recipients say so themselves. Um, so, for example, on this thread, I had an interaction with uh, Robbie Suave over at Reason mm -hmm. uh, Foundation. I didn't know Reason got Coke money. I learned it from that interaction. So um, but basically, you know, a lot of this is reliant on uh, my conversations with people out here, talking to ex Coke employees uh, who worked at these foundations or these these organizations. Um, but one of their biggest, and, and this kind of circles back to what the thread was about, one of their biggest focuses, in fact, it's the main issue on their site, is criminal justice reform. And that's an issue that 
you know, if you're a conservative out here in D.C., you hear people talking about all the time. Uh, it, you know, we need to make sure you always hear the story of, uh, you know, we don't want someone who got caught with possession of marijuana to go to jail for 10 years. And of course, you know, when somebody says a story like that, it's hard to disagree with it. Like, yeah, I, I don't want, you know, for someone to have an ounce of marijuana to have their life totally ruined. And usually but just so people know, that's not actually what is happening. People aren't right. typically going to jail for 10 years because of an ounce of marijuana. It's typically something else. And that just happens to be what what they are able to charge them with or what the police are able to book them on. So that's a little bit of a of a myth that we hear from the criminal justice reform activists. Absolutely. And 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 really the effects of criminal justice reform go go much further beyond that. So without going down too much of a rabbit hole, and I do apologize and please No, you can take us no, you can take us down the rabbit hole. We love rabbit holes. So uh, a couple of years ago, my organization authored a report about Black Lives Matter and the Breed Act. And this was like the ultimate uh, goal of criminal justice reform from the left's perspective. And it is, you know, basically making sure that if you're under the age of 24, you're never incarcerated, that if you're in jail currently for a drug charge, that you're released immediately, that there's no life sentences for any crime ever, wow. uh, all these different things. And there's this overlap between the right and the left on this issue. Mm -hmm. So when we what brought this up this week was the confirmation hearing of Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson and Senator Josh Hawley and Senator Ted Cruz's questioning of her uh, over some of her lighter sentencing in the past, some really light sentencing against sex offenders. And a lot of people on the right, National Review wrote a piece, plenty of people on Twitter were defending this position. And so what I was trying to articulate is that this position is held by people on the left and the right. It's a defending very, the know, position, defending Ketanji Brown Jackson's position of issuing light sentences. Yes. 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 Okay. Even, so, so, you know, Josh Hawley brought up pedophiles, which obviously is probably the least defensible uh, example. But when you're talking about criminal justice reform, it is a belief, and this is a debate that goes back decades, but it's a belief in rehabilitation over uh, deterrence, over over a longer sentence. They call and it course, restorative justice very often. Yeah. But unfortunately, what happens, and, and Holly pointed this out, I think Cruz did too, a lot of these uh, offenders are recidivists. And they exactly. you know go to jail for three months, as one of them did uh, that Holly quoted, uh, and then they go back out and then they offend again. And so I think right. the, the, re the real issue here is that D.C. is a blob. There's a lot of money that goes around to make people out here care about issues like this. But if you talk to anybody back home, criminal justice reform, if you really get into what it is, nobody supports that. And including, uh, you know, people, minorities, all sorts of people. It's not just Republican voters. Right. And the left is really good at this. But as you mentioned, it is some people on the right. But the the left is really good at the language game. They're really good at slapping euphemisms on the policy positions that they want. So you don't actually have to get into the details of what they are actually supporting. So like reproductive justice, they put all these adjectives in front of justice. And because no one wants to be unjust, no one wants to be against justice. You say, yeah, I'm for reproductive justice. Sure, I'm for criminal justice reform. But then, as you said, once you get down into the nitty gritty, not just of what the policies are, which is basically letting people out of jail, them not getting prosecuted, all this. Um, and then you look at the, the consequences of what those policies are and how they're not making people safe and they're not actually helping the criminals that are committing the crimes. Um, then you realize it's really just a 
bunch of hogwash. Like, letting people out of jail or having fewer people in jail is not in itself a just end unless we are preventing what people are actually going to jail for. But you mentioned Katanji Brown-Jackson, one of the cases that Josh Hawley brought up and I think was brought up a few times. Uh, the Washington Post wrote an article about it and they really wrote, it was so disgusting, a puff piece about this um, child sex abuse consumer, um, let's see, Wesley Hawkins, who Brown Jackson had sentenced to only three months in prison, even though prosecutors had recommended two years. I think federal guidelines were up to 10 years. And really, it was amazing her reasoning behind this. First, the author in this Washington Post article um, tries to make us feel sympathetic towards Hawkins and towards the judge and make us feel very angry at the Republicans who are asking about this and also very angry about Hawkins's family because at the end, uh, they tell us that the reason that he looked at child sex abuse material was because his family was homophobic and he didn't know where else to turn. It's just really incredible, the journalism these days. But what Katanji Brown Jackson said was that the reason that she only sentenced him, he was 18 years old, 19 when he was sentenced, the reason that she only sentenced him to three months in prison is because he was just looking at images of, quote, his peers, and that because he was so young, it's not a big deal. Well, the records show that some of the children that he watched being raped were eight years old. And so, I mean, this is really nefarious stuff. This is not some conspiracy theory. A lot of articles are saying that it's conspiracy theory. You mentioned Reason.com. Josh Hawley absurdly suggests that Katanji Brown-Jackson has a soft spot for child predators. Uh, Vanity Fair, Vox, they're all calling this QAnon and, and all this stuff. It's really, really bizarre to me. Even if you are on the side of criminal justice reform, why would they go out of their way to try to defend the light sentencing of child predators? Like, what really is behind that? That's totally shameless, in my opinion. It is. Um, you know, we talked previously about Trump derangement syndrome, and I yes. think Holly kind of creates the same thing on the left. As soon as he brought this up, uh, they felt like they had to oppose it. Uh, but look, I'll, I'll tell you, it, it, just so your your viewers know, you know, our organization has worked on protecting kids, working on some of this trafficking stuff. Um, it's when when someone searches for child pornography, it's not like something that accidentally happens, right? right? And I think that's something that a lot of these folks are trying to do to gin up sympathy. But on the top layer of the internet, the internet that we all use, you're not going to find child pornography. It, it is actually removed pretty effectively. Um, to go find it, you have to dig and you have to use all of the, you know, the dark web and all of these different things. And so for somebody like that, you know, and again, this is also just something that we've seen this. There's studies on it. When someone is looking for child pornography for personal use or whatever, uh, that is an indication that they're going to hurt a child. That, right. that it's not it's not one of these things where you can separate the two things. Um, and so I, I, I think it's despicable, but it does kind of show um, how, you know, I think morally repugnant our establishment is out here that something like this, which should be easily a slam dunk issue, is uh, is up for debate. It's just it's very troubling that they would try to say that any criticism of light sentencing of child predators and viewers of child sex abuse material, that that's QAnon. I mean, that's really, really disturbing logic. Now, some logic that I saw in National Review, you mentioned National Review, I think it was by Andrew McCarthy, said basically that Republicans shouldn't be focusing 
specifically on the child predator stuff, but should maybe highlight the fact that she regularly has bucked sentencing guidelines, that she really is soft on crime in general. And that is why, like, the Cato Institute, the Koch brothers would be behind her. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's accurate. You know, I I think McCarthy, unfortunately, this is just a question of politics. But when you, you know, use the inflammatory language he did uh, in National Review to criticize Hawley, everyone's going to run with the top line headline and the top sentence and say National Review debunked Hawley. And I, I understand it. I understood his piece. And and look, I think there's a lot of truth to maybe going with the, the broad scope of things. But, you know, I think most folks, your viewers, probably among them, don't understand or haven't heard uh, about this push for lesser sentences for sex offenders. It seems really bizarre. And so if we're not going to have this debate now during a high profile Supreme Court hearing, when are we supposed to have it? And so I think that's the uh, the frustration a lot of us have had with this line of argument is uh, this is an argument we should be having. It's not a, you know, it's not a slur or a smear uh, against Ketanji Brown Jackson. It's a record and we should be discussing it. So you mentioned in your thread, um, you mentioned, you said this, the Kochs and the movement they cultivated through targeted grants were very successful. Trump was unable to get most of his priorities passed during his term, but the First Step Act became law fairly easily. Few, besides Tom Cotton, publicly opposed. Um, remind us what the First Step Act was and why Trump and so many Republicans said, yeah, let's definitely do this. Well, the First Step Act is a criminal justice reform bill, and you know it did seek again. It's that it's that example of drugs I gave you at the at the forefront. Mm. That's what everyone was told it was about. Um, but we've seen, and and Cotton I think has documented this pretty well, and some other sites as well, that there's been a lot of criminals uh, with different types of offenses, gun offenses, all sorts of things that have been released, um, and 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 of course they're recidivists. They 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 do it again. So this crime wave. You know, a lot of people are trying to tie, and, and maybe it's fair. I, I would I wouldn't know for sure, but it might be fair to tie this crime wave in part to the First Step Act. And so, you know, I think the president um, and his advisors, I think they were trying to do the right thing. I don't necessarily fault them for signing that bill uh, when there was so little opposition to it. But when you look at the money and you look at you know what the Koch brothers, uh, the Koch Foundation, and all of them were trying to do as early as 2014, 2015 with this issue, it's pretty clear that there was they they kind of bought uh, conservative uh, unanimous opinion on this out here, and and that had a huge effect. Where you know if maybe those grants weren't out there, uh, maybe if you know things were a little bit different and some groups were opposing it, maybe Trump wouldn't have signed the bill. Wow, and. I know this is probably speculation, but why? Like, is there some economic benefit? Like, what is the so-called conservative or maybe libertarian argument for the kind of criminal justice reform that we're seeing that very obviously, especially if you look at these progressive cities where these policies are at the forefront and are most consistently applied, I mean, you see a rise in death and destruction almost every time we hear a story of being murdered. The person who murdered them or the person who assaulted them um, was out because of, you know, a, a low bail set by some kind of progressive judge or they were just able to, you know, fly through short sentences. They had previous very serious um, violent crime charges. 
and they were able to go out and reoffend. I think it's a crazy percentage, a crazy high percentage of people who are recidivists who go out and commit a similar or worse crime again. So, like, what is the what is the motivation? The progressive motivation? I'm like, okay, I feel like they are just bent on destruction of the United States. Whatever. I don't understand the libertarian reasoning behind this. Yeah, the progressive motivation is definitely the equity agenda, right? That um, you know, if there's any. Uh, you know, if there's more blacks in prison than the general population, that's evidence of systemic racism. And so the only way to fix that is to release enough criminals onto the streets. Even um, if that with, means, which it does, even if that means that more innocent black Americans die, because that's exactly what happens. I mean, it's typically intra-racial violent crime of any race, but we know the homicide rate among black Americans, unfortunately, is really high. So you're just creating more black victims of murder when you decide to meet these equity quotas without actually addressing the root cause. But no one seems to care about the victims in criminal justice reform. No, that's right. And it's it's a tragedy of, of the policy out here. But I'll tell you, you know, so I think somewhat libertarians probably buy into the equity agenda. They might not say it explicitly. But I also I'm just going to say this, Allie, and, and I, I think this is, you know, just true. Um, you know, I can't back it up. But the, the reality is that people out here really do want to be liked. Um, they want to be seen, especially on the right, as not racist. And so embracing things like this are a way to, to you know, not be attacked and yeah. to, to have that. And so I think the motivator for a lot of these folks, you know, some of them probably have some tragic stories where they know somebody who went to jail for drugs or something like that. And look, I'm sympathetic to that. But I think for a lot of them, it is it is about it's about cocktail parties. And I know, you know, people make fun of that, but it is just kind of how DC yeah. works and how this ecosystem is. But but what about, I mean, wh- what about the Koch brothers? Like, what do you think their motivation is? Surely they, maybe, maybe they don't, but surely they feel like they have some kind of pure motivation. Like, do you think that the Cato Institute and the Koch brothers, like, does it really come down to cocktail parties for them? Or do they have some kind of economic motivation or some kind of power motivation behind backing these kinds of destructive policies? It, it could be economic in a way that we haven't been able to discern yet. But I'll tell you, you know, the Cokes are very much have been concerned about how they're perceived. Uh, remember, they were very involved in the Tea Party wave back in 2010, and then the left demonized them. And, and you know, mm. these are corporate tycoons. They don't really like that. Um, they were actually running at there. I remember this. There was an advertising campaign for their company talking about all the great human work they're doing across the country. And they ran it for like a year. So I do think in part, it is about perception and criminal justice reform is an issue. If you poll it the way that they talk about it, it's probably an 80 percent issue. And so it's a it's an issue where if they put that first and foremost in what they're doing, maybe the left won't hate them as much. And I, I really do think that's a part of it. I know that seems cheap or political. Um, but, it, it, you know, it's hard to discern what else it could possibly be. And what is R Street? So R Street is a group out here that used to be seen as on the right, um, but they take a lot of corporate money, a lot of corporate money, um, and they're involved in various, you know, kind of right libertarian issues, uh, issues like defending big tech censorship and fighting against the antitrust bills. Uh, they often talk about uh, occupational licensing reform. Why, though? Why? Just because they're getting money from these major corporations, and so they're just going to be on the side of these major corporations, which is not, by the way, libertarian. Libertarianism does not equal 
defending big corporations that become almost as powerful and deleterious as big government. Well, that's so in my thread, I was hinting at this with uh, talking about how the Koch Foundation cultivates support with grants. And this is what corporations do out here. Mm, it's, it's a dirty yeah. little secret everyone knows about. But all of these, not all, but a good portion of these think tanks are for sale. And if you go in there, if you're oil and gas, if you're you know, big tech, whatever, and you go in there with a you know, six-figure grant and say, this is what we'd like to see, uh, they, they do it. And, and so this is, this is something I think Congress needs to become more aware of. Uh, I just think maybe they turned a blind eye to it in the past. But a lot of advocacy out here is pay to play. And, you know, what we're trying to do is, uh, to some degree, expose that. All right. Last sponsor for the day. We have a new sponsor, and that is Donors Trust. They are the principal tax-friendly way to simplify your charitable giving. If you donated to the Crisis Pregnancy Center that um, I advertise for a lot, I've advertised for several crisis pregnancy centers, not real advertisement, but I've talked about them on social media and had you donate to them, um, then maybe you are someone who likes to donate to pro-life charities in these pregnancy centers consistently. And if you do, you should know that there is a financial tool available that can help you manage your giving. A donor advised fund is a lot like a brokerage account, except it's for charitable dollars. Americans are increasingly opening these types of accounts. Some are even rolling over their charitable dollars from big donor advised fund providers to donors trust, a mission dry, a mission driven donor advised fund provider that specifically serves consumers conservative givers. So if you want to be more strategic with your giving and ultimately give as much money as you can to charity, sparing unborn babies, women, and families from the tragedy of abortion, go to donorstrust.org slash Great organization to download their, don- uh, their donor prospectus and discover whether a donor advised fund with Donors Trust is right for you. So go to donorstrust.org slash to find out how you can make a greater impact with your giving. That's donorstrust.org slash Okay, talking about exposing, this is a crazy connection. And maybe maybe you mentioned this and I just didn't see it. So so what is it? Paul Ryan. So Paul Ryan has a family connection to Katanji Brown Jackson. It's like Katanji Brown Jackson's brother-in-law is married to Paul Ryan's sister-in-law. Okay, so there's a connection there. And then Paul Ryan tweeted, Jana and I are incredibly happy for Katanji and her entire family. Our politics may differ, but my praise for Katanji's intellect, for her character, and for her integrity is unequivocal. Is there anything there? Is there, I mean, what's going on? Well, I will say if they're family friends, I'm not necessarily going to fault him for, you know, providing some support. But look, I, I think something that people need to understand is um, if you're not really worried about the social issues, is a liberal justice really that big of a deal, right? Like th- it's not. Um, and so if you're if you're somebody's mo- motivated by pro life, by you know fighting for women's sports and against the transgender agenda, uh, fighting for guns, all these things, of course, the idea of having a far leftist on the Supreme Court is scary. But I just don't know if Paul Ryan's really motivated by that stuff. It seems yeah. like to me he's always been motivated much more by the the fiscal conservatism, which is fine in its own right, but uh, without the social conservatism, it's bankrupt. Yeah, 
Wow. Wow. This is this is really interesting. I mean, I think that we can say, okay, maybe there are some good things about this person. I remember liking her initial speech. Of course, we know that progressive nominees very often try to come across as more moderate and more conservative when they are going through these hearings, and then they almost always rule to the left. So I don't think she's going to surprise us with any of her rulings. I think we know, as you've explained, why she is being supported by the entities that she's being supported. I am just a little surprised to see how much the media is trying to cover up the sex offender stuff. That that does surprise me. I would think, okay, you just ignore it. They're not ignoring it, but they're also not really debunking it. Like they'll have headlines saying this is misleading. This is misinformation. We're going to debunk this. And then they go through it and they don't they're not actually able to debunk it because, I mean, it's all public record. It's all it's all there. Everything that Josh Hawley said is is exactly right. I mean, it's true. And I guess it's not specific to child predators, but we should be worried in general. Someone who apparently doesn't care quite as much about the the rights of the victims. Well, as the left becomes more authoritarian, I think they're getting a little bit more lazy with their argumentation. And so with this, they'd rather just dismiss Josh Hawley as a QAnon sympathizer and, you know, so have social media ban anything critical. Right. Um, right. So, you know, but I, I think the, the, the big thing I've seen come across when people do engage in debate on this is why are you mad at Katanji Brown Jackson? This is basically what all of us believe. <laughs> And I don't think that's necessarily encouraging. And it's certainly something that I think is going to require us to keep an eye on and for us to continue to ask uh, judicial nominees going forward. You wrote this in the New York Post. Uh, Given all the criticism of Jackson's weak record on crime and sentencing, not to mention the White House withholding 48,000 pages of documents related to her time on the Sentencing Commission. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, and, you know, the crazy thing is they were selectively leaking those documents to friendly media outlets. So as they were trying to rebut Josh Hawley's criticism and Ted Cruz's criticism, uh, the media was fact checking and they were having help from the White House. But, yeah, 48,000 documents uh, or pages of documents. And, you know, I think we would have really gotten uh, to understand the judge's judicial philosophy. How is that possible? How is that how is that allowed that the White House can just withhold that kind of information? Uh, in this world, I mean, with with a media that's totally Anything on your team, possible. this would never have happened under a Republican. Right. Uh, if Trump had tried to withhold documents about Kavanaugh, uh, you would have seen an FBI investigation. You would have seen all sorts of things. Um, but this is just kind of the game they play now. And, you know, we are I mean, this is where we need Republicans elected because yeah. uh, they're going to cheat and they're going to collude with their friends in the media and in, in the corporate world. Yeah, I just I think the easiest way to explain why the media is the way it is, why it doesn't speak truth to power, just pretends that it does, why it doesn't hold Democrats and the people on their side accountable is really simple. I mean, I think it's a principle that we can all understand, as unfortunate as it is, is that it's really hard to think objectively and to write objectively about your friends. It's really hard to criticize your friends, people that you're close to, people that maybe you even feel are giving you access or giving you power or insulating you from whatever it is, criticism. It's really hard to write objectively about those people, especially when you share the same ideology. So that is just one reason why the media is so corrupt and why they are able to get away with the things that they are. One thing I want to ask you, you also mentioned in this New York Post article, the BREATHE Act. What What is the BREATHE Act? 
So the Breathe Act is the model legislation that all the, you know, all that Black Lives Matter funding had to go somewhere. And we know it went to some of the founders' houses and all that, but part of it went to groups that focus on this. And it's basically a total revamp of our criminal justice system, gets rid of, abolishes prisons, the entire, you know, defund the police agendas in there. Um, and a lot of Democrats, you know, it came out and endorsed this early. Now they've kind of run away from it. Nancy Pelosi isn't talking about it. But this is, at least from our perspective, what we have to see as the end goal of the Black Lives Matter movement of some of these radical woke woke folks. And, um, you know, it's pretty crazy. I mean, when you look at all the individual things it does, I mean, it basically gets rid of drug offenses. Again, like you no more life sentences. Uh, you know, people under the age of 24, I could go out there and, and do a bank robbery uh, with a gun. And if I was under the age of 24, under the Breathe Act, I wouldn't serve time. So it's, it's a very radical thing. We actually have a, um, a, a report out there. It's called Black Lives Matter and the Breathe Act and uh, authored by myself and some other folks at American Principles Project. But it's pretty crazy. And, and you know, I think the Democrats were smart to run away from this, at least publicly. But if they ever feel like they have the power to impose it, uh, they will do it. Yeah, absolutely. They will. Yeah. It seems like they have at least rhetorically kind of backed down from the defund the police language, um, at, at least temporarily. But I have no doubt if there is another incident like what happened with George Floyd or anything. I mean, it's been kind of strangely quiet on that front, talking about things like police brutality in general. I feel like we haven't heard a lot about that in the news recently, but I have no doubt if another crisis occurs that they will use that wave of crisis to push something as radical as that legislation. I mean, I say repeatedly on this show that social justice kills. Social justice is not just. Social justice says, how can we try to make outcomes for all different groups equal without actually looking at what is causing the disparity in the first place. As Thomas as Thomas Sowell says, discrimination or disparities are not inherent proof of discrimination. If there is a disparity in outcome between two groups, whether it's graduation rates, whether it's incarceration rates, that does not automatically mean that discrimination is the cause of that. But the equity social justice agenda just assumes that discrimination is the reason why, for example, maybe there's a higher proportion of Black Americans in jail. And so rather than looking at the root cause and solving the root cause, they just say, as you mentioned earlier, well, we just have to do whatever we can to make these numbers equal if that means releasing violent criminals from jail and creating more victims. Unfortunately, there are no equity quotas for victim numbers. Isn't that interesting? There are only equity quotas for the people that are creating the victims. Huh? It's almost like there's a nefarious, destructive motivation behind all of this. Um, well, I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful for your perspective and uncovering this. Last question I want to ask you, I noticed that you call yourself um, a populist. And this is something that I've seen more and more uh, from people on the right. I would say my husband and I talk a lot about, talk a lot recently. Um, I think it was Sagar and Jetty that first kind of made us start thinking a little bit differently about our conservatism. Um, and our perspectives have changed a lot. It's probably uh, the help of Tucker Carlson, too. Can you tell us, though, like, what is populism, essentially? Why do you call yourself a populist and not necessarily a conservative? 
So one of the political figures I um, really learned a lot from while he was alive was Jeff Bell. He uh, worked at American Principles Project previously, but you know worked for Reagan, uh, ran for Senate in New Jersey a couple times. And he had a book called Populism and Elitism. And he kind of said that this difference between populists and elitists was kind of the, the most important political difference. And basically what it comes down to is elitism is a belief that the people are too stupid or uh, you know can't govern themselves and we need an expert class to rule over them. And populists are people who have a general optimism about the American people and their ability not only to govern themselves, but to make decisions. And so I think, especially with COVID, and this is when I started really using that identifier, um, I, I think we're on the side of populism here. And so while I'm still a conservative and, and I think that conservative populism is definitely a thing, uh, I, I have an optimism in the American people. And I think that generally when you talk about populism, Trumpism is definitely a form of populism. I think that's the unique thing that that makes it makes it great. I'm curious what you think about our 2024 prospects for President Trump, DeSantis. You don't have to say exactly like who you want to be a candidate, but uh, where do you think the country is going? Who do you think most conservatives will get behind? I So the one thing I learned from Trump in uh, 2016, is that we don't know anything, yeah, right? Yeah, very true. And so, I, so I think that there's a conventional wisdom that if Trump runs, he will absolutely win, and he may. Um, I think he'll beat the Democrat, uh, assuming it's Joe Biden, but even if it was somebody else. But I also just think it's too early to count anyone else out. And so mm-hmm. DeSantis has shown himself to be very impressive as governor of Florida. Mm-hmm. And you know, if there is a primary between Trump and DeSantis, you know, we'll see what happens. I I think it would be good for us anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Do you think that this issue of crime, do you think it will be a key issue in 2024? You linked an article in your thread, Safe Streets Required the Political Will to Punish Crime and American Greatness by Austin Stone. It was published earlier in March. And that's true. I mean, progressives certainly don't have the political will. But as we've already mentioned, there are plenty of Republicans who don't have the political will either, probably because not because they're ideologically aligned with the equity policies, but because they're scared of losing their backing or seen as racist or whatever. So one, do you think that this will be an issue for people who are tired of the crime and the crime waves and the DA is not doing anything, the judge is not doing anything? And do you think at least Republicans will gain the political will to push back against this and make safe streets an issue for their campaigns. Well, as to the Republicans deciding, that's a that's a really good question. But I do think it's going to be an issue. Um, And the reason for that is, look, as we're trying to build this uh, multiracial working class coalition, uh, people are worried about crime. They're worried about, you know, their kids and, and making sure that uh, they can send them to school and not worry about them getting mugged or hurt. Um, and, and I think that's something that's going to affect suburban women. Uh, it's going to affect Hispanics. It's also going to affect uh, African-Americans. And so, you know, I, I think Republicans would be wise to focus on this. It um, Unfortunately, it's just kind of a reality. Like as crime goes up, as this stuff continues to happen, uh, we're going to have to talk about it more. There's going to be more tragedies. Uh, but I think it would be politically pretty silly uh, not for Republicans to 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 talk about it and to make that a big issue. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, thank you so much for giving us your insight today. I really appreciate it. Where can people um, follow you, support you, all that good stuff? Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, so I'm at Substack at johnschweppy.substack.com and then on Twitter at John Schweppy.
Okay, we'll provide those links in the description of this episode. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thanks so much for having me. 